So listen, we're glad you're here. We're going to continue in a series that we started quite a few weeks ago. If you're joining us for the very first time, let me do my best to catch you up on this series. This series has been about the essentials, and you and I and many people in our culture lately have been told, this is essential, this is essential, this is not essential. And then we've also looked to see what they really think is essential based on the rules, right? You with me? You're like, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. So the first week we talked about the gospel. If you're not familiar with that term, the gospel, that speaks to the good news. And so the scriptures talk about good news. And then when Christ came, he gave good news. And we talked about that first week, that that good news is centered around us understanding our need for a savior because we're sinners and how when people truly commit to him, they really do have good news alive in their life. The second week, Pastor Tom Stoll came back. He was the interim pastor here at this church about five years ago. And Pastor Tom was one of the guys that helped this church understand prayer and the importance of prayer. And if you were here, he talked about being a prayer warrior, not a prayer wimp. And so he, he challenged us in our prayer life to really press in that that's one of the ways that God really changes us and changes all kinds of situations around the world. And in week three, we talked about relationships just last week. And I talked to you about as much as it's up to you that God wants you to live at peace with each and every person around you relationally. We talked about the importance of those relationships. And this week, we're going to move into forgiveness. And so we're going to talk about how forgiveness is an essential inside the Christian faith. So how essential is it to forgive someone? How essential is that? Now, so I was researching this, and one of the things that surprised me, maybe not you, especially if you have a psychology background, is even in psychology, they say forgiveness is absolutely essential. It's essential. Let me give you some of the reasons I found in Psychology Today, a 2020 article that they said forgiveness is essential. They said, when you forgive someone, you forgive yourself. So in this concept that they were saying is there's part of this process of knowing what they did to you, your ownership of that and how it impacted you. They said there's a component of that. Second thing they said is forgiveness gets you out of the victim mode or the victim mentality. That makes sense, right? Moves me to a positive place. Forgiveness frees you, they said. So once you forgive someone, it frees that poison that's impacting your life of unforgiveness. And forgiveness actually helps your health, they said, literally your, your biological and physical health. And it also helps you to move forward in your spiritual path. Now, I agree with a lot of these things. I think this is true. I think people have experienced this level of forgiveness and this kind of forgiveness, but I want to introduce something that might surprise you, may shock you, uh, may challenge your thinking about forgiveness, is that while this is true and there's components to this, I don't think it's the full truth. I think it's a component of truth. I think it, it digs at the truth. It's a hint of the truth. And there are definitely parts of this that work in our life. But I think when you look at the biblical example of forgiveness, it goes far deeper than these reasons. And that actually the motive for you forgiving is very different biblically than the motive of psychology today and the pop culture we live. And I think that many of us, whether we realize it or not, we've fallen into this thinking. We've fallen into the thinking of this is why we forgive. But when you look at Jesus, you're going to find that he forgave for some completely different reasons that had nothing to do with his psychological well-being. And that that's the real modality that God's calling us to do for forgiveness. So let's look at a famous verse. It's actually the very first cry from the cross. If you're getting ready for Easter, you've been doing the Lent devotion. It's out of Luke 23, 34. You can open up there in your Bible. It'll be on the screen. If you're watching online, it's also inside the notes. You can grab the app. It's there as well. And this, this verse is something that a lot of people know that aren't even Christians. Luke 23, 34, only, only in this part of the gospel, only this gospel records this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Interesting, it's the only place this appears in the four Gospels. Also interesting about this thing is it's the very first cry that Jesus cries from the cross. And most commentators, when I looked at them, some good commentators out there talking about this passage, uh, they talk about the absolute uniqueness of this type of forgiveness, right? They get that. And I, and I didn't read all of them. I didn't have enough time in a week. But the ones I did read, that's all they talked about. I couldn't find one commentator for me. If you found one, email that to me um, that said, what's it mean that they know not what they do? Could not find one commentator. And as we prepared this with our pastors this week, we seem to focus on that verse, the second half of that verse, because let's just think about this for a second. Use your head with me. Did the Romans know what they were doing? Yeah, they did. They were experts at it. They were experts at crucifixion. When someone gave them the order to crucify, they were good at it. They did it well. They knew when someone was dead and they were an expert at making it happen. So they knew what they were doing. The Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem that called for his crucifixion, did they know what they were doing? And they did. They said, let his blood not only be on our heads, but on the heads of our children, right? So, so, so then you look at this, and you look at the scene at the crucifixion at the cross, and you imagine Jesus being there, and he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So they really knew what they did at the service level. And a lot of the Jewish scriptures also are like this, that there's a layer that's at the top, but then there's deeper layers as you dig down spiritually, right? There's something deeper there. And I think that when you begin to see what's deeper and why Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do, you'll begin to understand true biblical forgiveness. And I think Paul had this somewhat in mind when he wrote in the next passage we're going to look at. So if you got your finger there, put your other finger in 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at 16 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. And I think inside this, you're going to find the essentials of Christian forgiveness. Look at what uh, Paul had to write to this church, second, uh, second letter to Corinth. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So you've got a Bible in front of you or an app, I would circle no one in worldly point of view. That's significant. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as, through, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you've taken um, Growing with Grace, our second class here in discipleship, you know that one of the things that you look for when you observe the scriptures is a repeated word. I want you to notice how intentional the apostle was in this passage. How many times does he mention the word reconcile? It's five times. I believe that the key to true biblical forgiveness is connected to, hinged to, reconciliation and our understanding of reconciliation, because I believe that's what the Father was wanting us to see, that the motive behind real forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, is not that you'll feel better or that you'll have less poison in your life. 
or that you'll have greater psychological being, even though some of you need that. I'm not going to point you out here today or those online. I'm not going you know, to tweet your name. But the reality is, is the real reason is your own reconciliation and the reconciliation of the person who wounded or hurt you. This is biblical reconciliation. So we look at the essentials. Look at the essentials for forgiveness. Here's what they look like when we break them down. It's seeing people from heaven's point of view. This is where Jesus started in this passage and in his heart when he's making this cry from the cross, I believe. So from now on, we regard no one. Who's included in no one? Every stinking body, right? No one from a worldly point of view even though we once looked at Jesus this way. So the key for them was when they began to see Jesus, not from a worldly view, not as a prophet, not as a teacher, you know, not as someone who's just a great person, but they began to see him for who he really was, that their minds began to change. They had to get heaven's view. And I think you're going to see that heaven's view for those people, especially those that were there at Jesus' crucifixion, was the key to his forgiveness for them. So let's think about who was there. There were those Roman guards, right? Did you know that one of the Roman guards was a centurion? You know, the centurions were pretty bad people, right? They, they like stab Navy SEALs in the heart today, okay? These are bad people. These are military men that know what they're doing. They have command of large areas, and they know what they're doing. And not only do they know what they're doing, but they, they certainly aren't a compassionate kind of person. You ever met somebody like that? You know, you've met them, and they can turn that switch. Like, I like you. I'm in society, but I can flip the switch, and I'll kill everybody here. That, that, that's what you're dealing with when you're dealing with a Roman centurion. And this Roman centurion... By the end of the crucifixion, if you remember the Gospels, looks to Jesus at his death, and he says, surely this was the Son of God. He began with a human view of who Jesus was, but somehow that was changed by the end of the crucifixion, and he no longer regarded him in that way. And Jesus, I believe, looking from the cross, knew that there were people right there, that their lives were going to be transformed as they began to see him, not from the world's view, but from God's view. And that's when he's thinking, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't know the consequences of what they're doing. They don't know the impact of what they're doing. They don't see me for who I fully am at this point. And I think that's true of a lot of people around Jesus's life. Let's just think of some of the people that were were there and weren't there, right? Peter tucked tail and ran. Peter went from being a guy who was not only a big mouth and a betrayer to probably the biggest declarer of the good news of who Jesus is at Pentecost, right? When the church was birthed, what happened? He moved from seeing Jesus from the world's view to heaven's view. What happened in the life of Paul? Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of the church, right? He was murdering Christians to stop the spread of this new faith that he didn't see as biblical. And so as he did that, one day he encountered the living Savior, and he went from persecutor to pursuer. He became the greatest pursuer of the Gentiles ever known because his viewpoint changed from the earth to heaven. Maybe you've heard of this guy, John Newton. Anybody heard of John Newton? He's not the guy that invented Fig Newtons, okay, before you think that. He's not the guy, guy, okay? John Newton was an Anglican minister, but before he was an Anglican minister, you may know this, he was a slave trader. And he actually captained one of his slave vessels that would get people from Africa and bring them to different places. He was involved in that slave trade. And it's within that that he began to really reflect on his own life and what a horrible, sinful man that he was. And eventually, as he became an Anglican pastor, Anglican minister, he penned words that you know now in a poem. The poem he penned was Amazing Grace. It was later put to, to music, but he originally wrote it as a poem. And he went from being someone who was chasing down slaves to an abolitionist, the one that actually sought to see freedom brought 
to England and to Europe. Why? Because he went from seeing Jesus from the world's point of view, from heaven's point of view. In the world we live in, this is becoming increasingly hard to see people from heaven's view. You know why? Because we do live in a, in a world that cancel culture is a part of it. You've heard this term in the media. You've heard this around us. And essentially what it says is when someone does something that you don't agree with, that maybe is wrong even, but you see them, what you want to do is cancel their ability to have influence and, and even a job or even move forward. We see it all around us. And what it's framed in is a worldview that only looks at the world. Because when you begin to see people as people that can be redeemed, people that can be restored, people whose lives and passions and hearts can be changed to a right place, to a noble place, to a godly place. You never want to cancel them. You're always holding out hope for their redemption. Their reconciliation is what Paul's saying. So let me just have you think for a second. Who have you injured? Who's caused injury to you? How do you view them right now? Are they the enemy? Or do you begin to think about them from heaven's point of view. This has all kinds of implications. Some of you guys know Brother Jim. Jim was the choir director here for 50 years. Brother Jim went over to Sharptown. Sharptown's a little town I grew up in. He went over to Sharptown and he started asking people, do you know this guy, Larry Davis? They're like, oh yeah, we know Larry Davis. We knew him before, pastor, okay? And they began to give Jim all of these stories. Jim came back. He was so excited. He goes, you wouldn't believe the stories I learned about you. I said, oh, I believe, Jim. I lived that out. Because there's a point in my life when I looked at Jesus from a worldly view. And then there was a moment where things really radically changed. I saw him from heaven's view. And I want to submit to you today that everybody has a BC. Everyone has a BC, a before Christ. But not everyone has an after. And you got to start thinking about people this way. Jesus was thinking about the Jewish folks who were in that audience. He was thinking about that centurion. He was thinking about those Romans. He was thinking about every single one of them. They don't know what they do. They don't know the implications of their own hate and of what they're doing this moment. They certainly knew what they were doing at this level and they knew that they were injuring and wounding and hurting him and were gonna end his life, but they didn't know the deeper pieces. So the first essential that you and I have to see is we have to start seeing people from heaven's view. The second is allow submission to precede admission. Submission to precede admission. What I mean by this is when you look at verses 18 and 19, he said, all this from God, this is where he starts to really use this word reconciled. And he said, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ not counting men's sins against them. So in other words, think about this for a second. Mankind's a pretty sinful group, are we not? Just spend some time with us, right? And here God is saying, I'm not counting that against you. I'm not waiting for you to admit it. I'm not waiting for you to agree on the injury that you've caused other people and me as God. I'm going to take the first step in your reconciliation by sending Jesus to pay for that sin. He submitted. It's because of Jesus' submission that we have reconciliation, not because of our admission. That's an interesting component. And so when you look at this process of forgiveness, the guy was holding on to that waiting. It takes quite a bit of humility, doesn't it? And Jesus was, of course, the perfect mark of humility when you looked at him. He, being God in the flesh, didn't call anyone to worship him the way he deserved. Yet he loved and surrendered to each and every person that they might be reconciled. And he gives us this model of reconciliation. This is where real forgiveness happens. I want to read to you... Um, 
about a woman that some of you may know and some of you may never have heard of. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom was a, a she was a missionary, no doubt, but she also was someone, if you don't know her history in World War II, that she was hiding people who were Jewish in her home so the Nazis couldn't get them and exterminate them. She wrote a pretty cool book called The Hiding Place, if you'd like to read it. It's a phenomenal book. But when you begin to look at her life, you realize that after um, all this happened, when they finally found her out, they put her in a concentration camp with her family. And so she went through a pretty horrific time in that concentration camp. And after World War II, she was one of the ones that lived through that. She started to teach on forgiveness, teach on this amazing thing that God had done for her and had done for other people and how it had set them free. She found herself in Munich, Germany, of all places, not long after the war, and she was teaching on forgiveness. And while she's teaching on forgiveness, at the end of the message, it's like here, people kind of meander, walk around. A man walked up to her at the end of that message, and she realized it was one of the prison guards from that prison. I want to read to you her words verbatim because I think they're so powerful. I don't want to taint them with just paraphrase. Listen to what she said. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses, the shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravenbrook concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. His hand was thrust out and he said, quote, a fine message for all I How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among all the thousands of women that were there? But I remember him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. Quote, you mentioned Ravenbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well for all I Again, his, came, came, his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive the sins of men and their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remain invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. 
and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, if Corey Ten Boom would have waited for the admission, she would have never experienced the power of reconciliation. She had to first submit, submit her pride, submit her injury, submit what she thought was owed to her, And then once she had done that, she could experience not only reconciliation for her, but reconciliation for him. Many of us have wounds like that, don't we? Hurts like that, deep things that have happened. In my own life, I'll give you one as an example. I hope it'll shed light on this concept of reconciliation and why we need to submit before we sometimes wait on admission. I was hanging out with my father. Some of you know that my dad left when I was 14, but we got to reconnect when I was 19 in the Navy out in California. He came up to visit for a while. And while we're visiting, we're up late one night. We're having a conversation. And my dad says to me, you know, you were born pretty late. They didn't have me until they were in their 40s, 40 exactly. And he says, I want you to know your mother never wanted you. Now, some of you have heard things like that. And the wound hit me pretty deep. Of course, my immediate reaction was not Christian. It was to argue with and to to really dig in my heels. So let me bring back that phrase of Jesus for a second as you ponder a word like that that maybe have spoken to you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. My dad knew what he was doing. He knew in that moment, after being absent for so many years, that he was going to try to poison me against my own mother to improve the relationship with him. He knew that. He was schooled in that. He had great habits he had built over time to do that. But he did not know the injury to his own soul, the injury to mine, and the injury to anyone else that would have involved in that relationship. This is what Jesus says when he says the deeper thing they know, not what they do. And so the right thing to do for someone like that is to begin to pray for their reconciliation. Because it's only then that you can see healing in your own life and in theirs. So let me walk this through you again. The essentials of that kind of forgiveness begin, first of all, see people from heaven's view, not the world's. Allow submission to precede that admission. that You have to submit to what God wants on your part of this. And then number three, it's motivated by the restoration. You're motivated by restoration. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, you and I. He sent you out if you're a Christian, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know that the word that there in the original language is what we call an imperative. And an imperative in scripture means it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. When he says, be reconciled, 
He's commanding those that say they're Christians, commanding those that call in the name of Christ to be reconciled and to become reconciliation for all those around them. It's a command. The world wants you to, to forgive so you can be healed. Christ wants you to forgive not only you, but your assailant so that you both can be restored to God. And that's a deeper concept of forgiveness that is much more powerful than anything the world has to offer us. You see, restoration does not excuse what the person did. You thought about that? You don't have to wait for that admission. They don't have to admit what happened. And it doesn't excuse what happened. Their words could be heinous. Their actions could be heinous. But the reality is, is restoration wants them to be restored to God because, you know, once that happens, their heart can be truly changed. You see, restoration does not expect an apology. You go in with restoration. I don't need an apology from you. What I need is to tell you about the restoration that God's given me, which you need in your life if you're really going to be healed. Restoration hopes for transformation based on the gospel. You hope for that person, that they will be fully restored. And it allows room for healthy boundaries while you await the reconciliation. You see, reconciliation says, I want you forgiven. I want you fully healed. I want you to have this relationship with God, but I can set healthy boundaries in that season as I wait to see the fruit of reconciliation. It helps to shape the relationship in the healthiest way possible, not just some shallow, I forgive you, but I want you to experience the full forgiveness of God through my life and through a personal relationship with Jesus. And as I wait for that, I can pray for you. I know how to pray for you, but I can set boundaries. Think about Corey Ten Boom for a second. You think it would have been smart for her to be alone with that prison guard the first time she met him? That would not have been good, would it? There needed to be a boundary there, didn't it? But if she saw the fruit of the gospel take place, intimacy over time could grow in the relationship because the ministry of reconciliation allows for that. Where forgiveness is like, Whoop, I forgive you. I feel good about me now. We're done. Reconciliation goes further. It's deeper. My father, I learned to trust him with certain things and not other things as I waited to see the fruit of reconciliation happen in his life. And that's a healthy boundary. And those are hard to define at times. But when your reconciliation and forgiveness are connected together like that, it's so healthy. You know, in Celebrate Recovery, which we have here every Thursday at 645, it starts. They work through this all the time. All the time. One of my favorite steps that I get to hear about and see people walk through is step four that they go through, which is where they have to make a real fearless search of their own moral inventory of how they've been wronged and how they may have wronged others. That's one of the hardest ones. I remember when Danny was doing, I think, how many, how many did you do? Four of those? Three of those? Took more videos, four videos to actually talk about just step four, where some of the other ones could be done in one video, one step. Because it's the part that really hits home, because really what it's talking about is the heart of reconciliation. That's what's at the heart of beginning to dig at this. And I know that there's some of you here today, I know there are, that you've got a hurt that's deep or a habit that's deep. Or maybe you even just have a hang-up, something you just can't quite get past. And I know that the steps work. And I want to ask you, plead with you, as it says in this passage, to implore you, that if you're hung up in that way, you've got a hurt like that, that you've never been able to dig out of forgiveness, that you've never been able to minister to people, you should, you should come on Thursday nights. It's one of the most gracious places you'll find yourself, and you will experience the healing of God. That's an action step if you need that, and you find that you're hung up. 6.45 every Thursday right here. So this week, here's my challenge to you. Here's the thing I want to ask you to do. 
Be reconciled and seek reconciliation for others. First, be reconciled yourself, and then you can seek reconciliation for others. Matthew 10 says it this way, and it's so beautiful. Freely you receive. In other words, you didn't do anything to be forgiven or reconciled. Christ did all that for you. He did that. Freely give. Would you be willing to offer the same forgiveness to people that God has offered to you? In a moment, Danny's going to come, and one of the things that we love is using some of the arts to kind of typify or help us to think about the messages we've heard today. And as Danny gets ready to come and share um, a unique way of um, showing us forgiveness, I want to pray for you that your heart would begin to be tender in this area because I believe you need forgiveness and you need reconciliation. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for the example of Christ. Such a difficult example. He came to his own creation, that which he literally brought into being through his own word. And he allowed his own creation to crucify him. And in the midst of this horrible act, he takes a moment to look down and to see every person there from heaven's vantage point before Christ, knowing that they needed a relationship with him. Father, instead of reasoning with them, arguing with them, or hating them, he loved them and forgave them because he wanted to see them fully reconciled to you. Father, in our own lives, we have had people hurt us, wound us, and harm us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit in this moment will bring those moments to our mind and even to our heart. God, we've also wronged and hurt others, and we want you to bring those actions to mind as well. And God, we need the ministry of reconciliation, first from Christ, and then to others. But more than that, Lord, we need your full empowerment to do so. Father, as we think on these things, as we meditate on these issues where we need forgiveness and those we need to forgive, deal with us. Bring anything to mind that keeps us from you or one another. And then give us the courage to forgive as Christ forgave. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Larry. That was an awesome message. Awesome message. Um, I love the fact that he brought up recovery. Uh, I love every opportunity I get to talk about recovery in any shape or form because I believe it is crucial for all of us um, in the church. Um, the one thing I learned about recovery is you can't, you can't fix a problem or you can't make a problem go away by pretending it's not there. And in recovery, we talk about that's uh, stepping out of denial, right? Admitting that there's some issues and being willing to face those. Um, like Larry said, like Pastor Larry said, that is a very hard thing to do. I can tell you from personal experience, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. And I still have to do that on a daily basis. And it's still the hardest thing I ever have to do. Because now that I've been in recovery for a long time, I've learned that when I, when I make, when, when an issue arises, I have to promptly admit it. That promptly part is what makes it so hard because immediately you have to swallow a pride and you have to admit that you were wrong. And, uh, but that step four 
that step four and that step 10 is a, is a constant reminder of how we can get better in life. You know, I, I imagine you all are kind of like me. I imagine you all have a best friend or you've had best friends in your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a childhood friend that you went to school with and now you're, you know, many moons later in that friendship. But have you ever had that best friend moment where somebody either says something or somebody does something and that's something, whether it's a word or an action, kind of drives a wedge in between the two of you. And over a season, over time, like the relationship grows cold and you start to, you start to realize that something's just not right, that, that you, you, you really start missing your friend, that relationship, that connection. And it comes to a point where you're like, man, I really want to make this right but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to act. I don't know where to be. And so I get stuck in those moments a lot over my life, still in my current life. I still have relationships that like that. Like I just, I want to make things right, but I just don't know how. So one of the, one of the things that God's helped me to do over time is, is he's helped me to express myself through a form of poetry called spoken word. And like when I get into those moments of writing I connect with God on a deeper level and I'm able to put what's really on my heart down on paper. And if I can put it on paper, it makes it easier for me to say it. So this, this, what I'm about to read to you is an example of a self-expression of something that I've felt, something that I've worked through and something I still kind of go through. So this, this specific writing is called making it right. Friends to the end, needing to amend this lost and broken, unspoken token of the feelings we have. What did we miss to get to this point of no longer having this friendship? Pointing fingers and blame, just to name a few. Completely forgetting everything we've been through. We have to choose to remove this bruise this time has left on our heart. No longer talking or walking together but falling apart. Making things better together is where we must start. We need to, to sit and flip the script on this tragic slip of grip and get it out in the open, hoping to take this token to mend what is lost and broken. You see, one sided in my mind was the thought that I bought when I chose to buy the lie that I had. Making this right is not a delight, but a fight deserving of fixing my sight. Unclenching my fist to exist in a peaceful bliss known as our friendship. Realizing my part and accepting I'm not innocent. So here's my part from the start, unfolding my heart. To reveal what I feel so maybe we can heal and no longer let the enemy steal what belongs to us. I know my words are broken, and now I'm hoping that my actions display our friendship can be reopened. So here it is, my friend to the end, from deep within, I was wrong. I never meant to react and attack and break the pact that we made throwing shade like a grenade, chaos and destruction only displayed. Truth be told, 
I lost the hold and I watched it unfold right in front of my eyes. Forgiveness I seek, trying to meet in the middle of the street, hoping it's not too far gone or too bleak. So I've got this plan in my hand, hoping you understand. Time drops like sand. So let's take this opportunity and seek unity. I know you couldn't get through to me, but now I'm listening. I do not deserve to be heard, not even one word, but I can't leave it like this. Trying to address and clean up this mess that caused this catastrophic stress that quickly resulted in a flat press of emotions. So what's the deal? Bring it real. No longer conceal how you feel about this, this ocean of emotion quickly exploding in that which we are no longer devoting our time to. So my heart's on the table, finally stable and able to ask, will you please forgive me? This is the moments that I get caught in, and these are the things that I wish I could say, and I know that it's hard to, to take those steps. But we deserve more than a life of just being bitter and hollow. We, we deserve something better than that. Our friendships, our loved ones, we shouldn't be taken away from them because something that can be resolved by something that can just be mended back together with the simple act of just opening up and being honest with each other and being willing to receive each other back in that forgiveness like God gives, like Christ gives, being able to receive that. God gives it to us freely, but yet we hold on to it so stingy. So if there's something or someone in your life that's keeping the relationship apart, don't wait, don't hesitate. Get it out in the open and make things right. Thank you. Really quick announcements, real quick, before I turn it back over to the bands. Uh, the Connect card, whether you're here in person or you're online, if you're here in person, it's on your bulletin. Make sure you fill it out, drop it in the box. Online, they'll post a link. You can uh, click it, click the link, fill out the Connect card. It doesn't have to be during the service. It could be afterwards. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. But if there is something that you're struggling with, if it's a relationship or any, any kind of issue whatsoever, and you just need to get it out in the open, put it on your Connect card. Because I would love to reach out to you and help you walk down your path through that. Also, um, it's because of your faithfulness and giving that we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery and so many other ministries that we do here at this church. So I'd just like to thank you for, for your continued giving in this season. And there's also a link that you can click. And if you're in person, you can drop your tithes in the box back there by the exit door. So again, thank you very much. And it's all yours, man.